Well, good morning, everyone. Well, today we're beginning a little series in Titus, and uh, it's only a short book, three chapters. So we've got three weeks of looking at Titus. So um, we're going to dive into chapter one this morning. Before I begin, let me just uh, open in prayer. Gracious Lord, we do thank you for the gift of your word, and we do thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. We pray that as we read, as we listen to your word uh, read to us, that we'll take to heart what is there. May our lives be changed by your speaking to us through your word and through your Holy Spirit working within us. So Lord, help us to um, yeah, be mindful and pay attention to what you want us to learn this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Titus. Well, who was Titus? Titus was probably one of Paul's very first converts way back in Antioch. Uh, Titus was a Gentile or non-Jew. And Paul addresses him in verse 4 as his true son in the common faith. And that indicates that there was a very special bond between Paul and Titus. Uh, A very close bond. Uh, When Paul wrote this letter to Titus, uh, Titus had been a companion of Paul for, uh, as well as a very active partner in Paul's ministry for over 15 years. So he'd been with Paul for quite a long time and experienced a lot of things as he travelled with Paul during that time. But strangely, as we read the Acts of the Apostles, we expect Titus to be mentioned quite frequently. He's not mentioned at all other than perhaps in general terms, but he's not named. But when we read Paul's letters, Titus is mentioned 13 times throughout the rest of the New Testament. After Titus was converted in Antioch, his conversion was so convincing, so genuine, that he served as like Exhibit A for Paul and Barnabas when they went up to Jerusalem in uh, Acts 15 to plead the course of Gentile or non-Jewish believers who had converted to Christianity. And we read that in Galatians chapter 2. And we read there that Titus's conversion was acknowledged to be genuine. He was a genuine believer in Christ. And that vindicated Paul's position uh, that it was okay to be uncircumcised. People didn't need to be circumcised to become genuine Christian believers. It was a big change at that time. Now it is very possible that Titus accompanied Paul during some or all of Paul's third missionary journey. Furthermore, it's highly likely that he was the bearer of Paul's severe letter to the Corinthian church. We don't have a copy of that. We believe Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthian Corinthian church we have only two of those letters the one in the middle there was Paul's severe letter as we call it and Paul was very concerned about how the Corinthian church would react to him writing so strongly to them and he was worried about that a negative reaction to that severe letter so he arranged to meet Titus after Titus had delivered the letter he arranged to meet Titus at Troas and we read that in 2 Corinthians 2 after Titus actually delivered the letter. He was wanting to know just how they responded. However, we found out that Titus didn't appear at Troas. 
We're not told why he was delayed. And so Paul then travelled on to Macedonia, where he eventually met up with Titus. And it was here that Titus brought news from Corinth about how Paul's severe letter was received. And Paul was greatly relieved to hear the good news that the Corinthians had responded favourably to what he had written them. And the worst of the trouble in Corinth was over. We're then reading 2 Corinthians 8, that Titus, accompanied by two other Christian brothers, was in the bearer of that actual letter of 2 Corinthians. He was also given the responsibility for making the final arrangements for the collection, which had begun a whole year beforehand in Corinth, for the impoverished believers in Jerusalem. Now, as we know, Paul travelled to Jerusalem. He was arrested and held in prison for some time. Then he was uh, shipped off to Rome. But uh, Paul was actually released from imprisonment in Rome and again embarked on on a journey. And Titus was probably with him at this time. And he travelled, as you can see from the map of Paul's fourth missionary journey, that uh, they visited Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul wasn't able to spend a lot of time in Crete, so he left Titus there. And he commissioned Titus as his representative, and he commissioned Titus with authority to, to remain there and complete the very much needed work to establish or plant churches across the island of Crete. And it was while Titus was still in Crete that Paul wrote him this letter. Now just to finish finish Titus's little uh, biography, at the end of Titus, Paul asked Titus to meet him later at Nicopolis. And that was after Paul had arranged for someone to replace Paul in Crete to carry on the work. In 2 Timothy 4, we learn that later Titus went on a mission to Dalmatia, which uh, is, uh, what is it? Illyricum on the top of the map there, uh, modern day uh, Croatia. And that's the last we hear about him in the New Testament. So that's in a nutshell, Titus, all we know of Titus. But I guess we can sum up from the tasks he was given, the responsibilities he was given, he was obviously a very capable and resource, resourceful leader. Now, zooming into Crete, the situation there was quite discouraging. The church was unorganised and its members were very careless in their behaviour. Perhaps the preaching of the gospel of grace and freedom had given the uh, Cretans the impression that salvation by faith was unconnected to an industrial, an, an industrious and uh, ethical or moral lifestyle. And we, as we read through the letter, we find that Paul says in six times, six times, the Christian believers there are urged to do good works. And of Paul acknowledges that salvation cannot be earned by good works in chapter 3, verse 5, he says that believers must demonstrate their faith by good works. A lesson for us to learn there as well. But it appears the trouble in Crete had been caused by a combination, as often does, it's never straightforward. It was a combination 
of firstly the inherent nature of the um, people of Crete, and we'll learn about that a bit later. Um, there was confusion over what we refer to as Jewish fables and myths, um, commandments that were promoted by a Judaizing group. And Paul calls them godless, unruly, divisive and mercenary. Uh, and again, we'll speak more of that later on in the chapter. And thirdly as well, there was a, a lack of very sound godly leadership within the churches themselves. So let's diving into the text. Paul begins the letter by introducing himself, as he usually does in his letters, and he introduces himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul saw himself as a slave or a servant. The word in Greek is used interchangeably. And it's a term of great humility, as it indicates a person who had been bought, owned and directed by God. On the other hand, the title Apostle of Jesus Christ is a title of great authority, designating someone who had received a unique personal call, uh, a commission, if you like, or an authorization, and an equipping from Jesus himself, and who was to be Jesus' inspired messenger. So the purpose Paul had become God's servant and Christ's apostle was, as we read there, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In this regard, Paul's ministry was governed by the truth of the gospel and the purpose of his ministry was to share and nurture people's faith in Jesus. The gospel that Paul was called to preach was based on the solid foundation of the knowledge of God. the truth of the gospel, just as it is for us. As we grow in our knowledge of God, our faith will grow as we get to know who God is and what he's done for us. Our faith in him should increase correspondingly. You see, the truth of the gospel has the power to change our lives from being ungodly to holy, or godly, lives that honour God in what we do, what we say, how we act. And this is an essential feature of gospel truth. And it's also a good test of its authenticity that since it comes from God, it actually leads to God. That's what the gospel should do. And any teaching that does not promote godliness is manifestly false. So in verse 2, we see the foundation of our faith and knowledge is in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. You see, our faith in Jesus not only saves us today in the here and now but, and makes our, God, our lives godly, but it also gives us hope for the future. And I'm talking about an eternal future. And we have the assurance of that eternal future because of God's promises to us. Our God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping judge. Sorry, judge. God. Judge also. Okay? God makes promises. He keeps those promises. We find that as we read through Scripture. 
And we have that assurance in Scripture. We have that promise of eternal salvation, of eternal life in heaven forever and ever. God makes that promise and God cannot lie. He wouldn't be God if he lied. God cannot lie. We've been born again into a living hope of eternal life because we've put our trust and faith in Jesus. And then verse 3 brings us almost full circle. Paul reminds us of his divine appointment and the command of God to preach the gospel and thus to establish and grow the faith in the people he spoke to and their knowledge as believers in Jesus. Faith and knowledge, they go hand in hand. Paul related everything in his ministry to the truth of the gospel. His calling, his preaching depended on the knowledge of God. True knowledge of God. And it also depended on his faith in Jesus. Two are intertwined. And he wanted Titus as well to hold on to this fact and make the gospel a priority in his ministry as well. So important was it to Paul. It was essential. And so in this first chapter um, in the letter to Titus, Paul reminds Titus of the two responsibilities, two main things he had to do in Crete, both of which relied on the truth of the gospel being understood, taught and proclaimed. The first is Titus was called to appoint qualified leaders. There is their... Um, Titus was called to put in order what was left unfinished and appoint all elders in every town. Titus was not to be the spiritual dictator, as you like, of the island. That wasn't his role. However, he was Paul's official apostolic representative. It's a mouthful. But he had Paul's authority to plant and establish churches right across the island of Crete. And it was Paul's as we look at Paul, it was his policy to appoint elders from the local population. Uh, in the church, he, like he travelled a lot, he stopped for a while in places, he identified leaders, elders in those places and then moved on when the churches were established. Um, <clears throat> but he was not able to stay long enough in Crete to do that. And so he delegated that work to Titus to finish the job there. And Titus's job was identifying and appointing gifted and conscientious elders to establish and consolidate uh, oversight pastorally of the churches. So then Paul goes on to give some guidelines and qualifications for being an elder. And please don't switch off here because this is so important as we look at who our leaders are what their characteristics should be, what their qualities of character should be. But I think this flows through to every Christian believer. This is a lifestyle we should all aspire to. So these are qualities or virtues that um, are valuable, important and honouring of God. So the first qualification is that they must be blameless. Now, this doesn't mean that they, the elders, should be Faultless or flawless, otherwise we'd all be disqualified, wouldn't we? 
However, it does mean you have that sense that an elder must be a person of integrity, a person above reproach, a person of whom there's no loophole for criticism, no skeletons in the closet, if you like, who might, which might surface to embarrass one. All this recognises that the office of elder is a public one. And so the elder's public reputation is important. Now this qualification extends to the elder's household. The idea here is that the elder, or that elders, cannot hope to win people to Christ if they cannot win those in their family who are most exposed to their influence. Nor are they able to manage a church if they cannot manage their own households. Just as a side note there, these churches we're talking about didn't meet in big buildings like this. They actually met in households. So when we talk about households, we're actually talking about the homes where people met to worship. And more often than not, this was the elders' house. Um, and so it was, it was important for the elder to set an example, not only in his own life, but in the life of his family. But one of the challenging realities of being a minister is that you're not... A, you personally are not only on public display, but your family is as well. And unfortunately, ministers tend to live in something like a goldfish bowl. Their lives, their homes and their families are open to the public and are often being scrutinised and, dare I say, criticised. This sort of public ministry... Um, affects one's family um, and we should be mindful of that um, with those who lead us in ministry. In this regard then Paul goes on to mention some of the temptations that elders may face in their role. And this is important because if an elder cannot manage these things for himself then he cannot be expected to manage a church. Therefore an elder must not be overbearing or proud Leadership positions often bring prestige and power. And this can sometimes bring the temptation to become arrogant or stubborn or overbearing. An elder must also be able to control their temper. Pastors are often obliged to minister to difficult and demanding people. And the temptation is to become irritable and impatient. An elder must also avoid becoming drunk and inclined to violence. I think that's pretty obvious. They should also avoid the temptation of seeing the ministry as a means of making money. Pastors should not be motivated by money. They should be motivated by service. First and foremost, money shouldn't enter into the equation. Paul probably mentions these qualities because they had particular relevance to the situation in Crete, which he goes on to uh, talk about later. But Paul then mentions, uh, goes on to list five positive characteristics which are largely self-explanatory. An elder must be hospitable. Welcoming, they need to be welcoming of people, not only church members, but visitors into their homes. And as I said, the, um, the early church met in homes. So it was important for that sort of hospitality to be extended to a, a wider group of people. And 
Hospitality is an important part of our church and if you'd like to put your name, tick uh, the box for being um, able to provide hospitality on the, um, on the sheets, then please do that. It's a good to know who is able to ha- open their homes. It's an important ministry to welcome people, to get to know people, to um, fellowship with them. Uh, an elder must be also one who loves what is good, meaning a person who's, they should be charitable, generous, willing to support good causes. They need to be self-controlled, in other words, having both a sober and sensible judgment and a disciplined lifestyle. Upright in their dealing with people and holy in their attitude to God and self-disciplined. Self-control, self-discipline, they go together. The elder must be able to manage themselves and uh, be disciplined in their behaviour and their relationships with other people. Lastly, and importantly in the Cretan context, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, this is the most important thing that Paul wanted to convey to Titus. Churches need to be established and built on the truth of the gospel. And elders needed to have a good grasp of the truth of the gospel so that they could teach and instruct their apprentices in Jesus. And they needed to hold firmly to it as the basis, the foundation, as the rock for everything they did. Now, this is a warning to us not to deviate from the gospel truth, not to add things that we think should be there in the Bible. Some things, things that could be misleading and not of God. And so Paul writes this in order that they not only teach the truth, the other reason that they could confront or correct any errors or false teaching as they arise. Which brings us to the reason Titus was to appoint elders in every town and to ensure that they met the standards that Paul laid down. You see, well, there seem to be many false teachers who are leading people astray. And the best strategy here to deal with false teaching is to multiply the number of true teachers who are equipped to rebut and refute doctrinal error. So Titus' second task was to silence the false teachers. As we look at this little paragraph, Paul has nothing good to say about them. They were rebellious. What that means is that they refused to submit to God's word or the authority of the apostle. They were full of meaningless talk. It's a lot of hot air, these guys. What they said may have impressed people, but it was empty of substance. And worse than that, they were deceivers. Not only did their talk fail to edify, but they actively led people astray. Some of them are trying to lead people back to Jewish legalism. And they taught about Jewish myths and, and probably alluded to their fanciful interpretations about what we call genealogies, a list of names in the Old Testament, and trying to make connections and make more of that than what is there. 
in so doing, they were growing in influence and disrupting whole households. Um, as I said before, these churches met in houses. And so the, if a false teacher was there as a member of that household or was a member of the, that house church, it wasn't difficult for them to really disrupt things and upset people with what they, they were preaching or proclaiming or trying to teach, particularly if it wasn't the truth. But Paul also accuses them of having ulterior motives. Namely, they're doing it for the sake of dishonest gain. They're in it for the money. Because in those days, there used to be travelling philosophers and teachers and people used to pay them money. They used to have public lectures um, and they used to make a fair bit of money. So some of these guys thought that, oh, if we sort of hook into the churches then people would pay them to share what they didn't know. So we're in it for the money. It was the King, I love this. As the King James Bible puts it, they're in it for filthy lucre's sake. Some of you might remember that term, filthy lucre. Dis- dishonest gain as it's translated now. And Paul then sums up their character in verse 12. They're always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. If I just pause there, this... this uh, little phrase is attributed to a guy by the name of Epimenides and he was a philosopher, teacher in Crete, sometime prophet, who wrote and spoke about 600 BC and he wrote these words to describe the general character of the people of Crete. It wasn't particularly flattering, was it? It was a general term but it was out there 600 years down the track, people there must have been some substance who this um, little phrase and Paul had obviously picked up on it and said, okay, you guys, this is how Cretans are known. But Paul goes on to say that both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God by their actions and by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. I think Paul was being a bit harsh. He was being very harsh. And the purpose here is he's trying to shame these guys, saying, okay, you can't argue with one of your own philosophers. This is how you're characterised. But wake up to yourselves, guys. This is not the right way to go. So we need to remind ourselves here that Paul believed in the power of the gospel to transform people. And... When we read through scripture, you know, go back to um, Acts um, chapter 2, 3, and the day of Pentecost. There were people from Crete who received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and they would have travelled back to the island. And as part of Titus's task in Crete, he was to identify and appoint elders from the Cretan believers who were certainly not liars, but teachers of the truth. So... We, we must be careful of these general terms that Paul uses. Um, and sometimes Jesus does the same thing. It's a global statement, but does not necessarily apply to individuals. But Paul's direction to Titus uh, was to silence the false teachers. 
And he was to do this in two ways. He was to rebuke them. And by rebuking them, chastising them, confronting them, he was hopefully able to draw them back to the truth of the gospel. These statements of Paul really is a way of waking them up. Come back to the truth of the gospel. Rebuke and rebut what they were actually promoting as untruth. Come back and stay with the truth. And secondly, Titus was to challenge uh, this false teaching. Sorry. Rebuke them, challenge and refute the false teaching of the truth of the gospel. He was also to encourage the believers to build their faith on true and sound doctrine. That's chapter 1 of Titus. How does it apply to us? That's the challenge of passages like this because I don't think there's too many false teachers. I hope there's no false teachers sitting here. If there were, um, yes, please take heed of Paul's warnings. We have a responsibility to appoint godly elders, but as I said, I think that uh, applies to us, the descriptions there. But we need to be cognizant of things that happen, uh, people say in the media and uh, be aware of what is true and what's not true, particularly when people speak to, um, speak from a, uh, a, a, an assumed Christian viewpoint. So the things we need to learn from this. Firstly, the importance of the Bible as the Word of God. The importance of the Word of God as being our standard for life and faith. Yes, we're encouraged to use study guides, commentaries and teaching outlines to assist our learning as apprentices of Jesus. But we need to evaluate everything we read or hear against the truth of God's Word. We need to read and study the Bible so we can evaluate for ourselves what is true and what is false. And if we're asked to teach a lesson, a Sunday school lesson, uh, or lead a, a Bible study in a life group, as part of our preparation, we should always read the Bible text first. That's our starting point. Now, let me say, the people who preach in this church work hard to make sure we adhere to the truth of the Bible. We do this task with great humility, but also conscientiously. But we all need to evaluate what is preached to us. Just don't take anything you hear up here as, I was going to say gospel truth, but <laughs> measure everything you hear against the standard of Scripture. That's why I put these passages up on the screen so you can see what is actually written in the Bible. We encourage you to open your Bibles Make sure what is being preached, proclaimed, is gospel truth. And if you hear something preached up here that you feel is at variance of the Bible, then challenge the preacher and ask questions if you want further clarification. Okay? I think we're all fine with that, aren't we, guys? Yes, Michael's nodding, Stuart's nodding, awesome. Secondly, we all need to aspire to God's standards. And in... in, in both the appointment of, of our leaders and pastors as well as in our own lives. Make, make mistake. The world is watching us. When people around us know that we're a Christian, 
Are we watching what we say, how we act, what we do? You see, we're just not apprentices of Jesus. We are his divine ambassadors to a lost and fallen world. And we need to act and speak accordingly. That's the challenge of this passage for us. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, may we take note of Paul's uh, writing to Titus. May we take on board for ourselves the uh, importance of leading godly lives that honour you above all else. May we understand the importance of knowing the Bible, of knowing what is true and being able to discern what is false. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us, assists us, equips us to become more and more like Jesus. And so we pray a blessing on all those who lead, all those who teach. Empower them, Lord, to teach truthfully your word in all that they do. In Jesus' name, amen.